All righty. All right. Good to see everybody. How's everybody? How's everyone doing this morning? Good? All right. Anybody enjoying the extended rain in San Diego? Does anybody want the sun? I want the sun, right? The sun, Jesus, and his son that gives us warmth, right? Amen? All right. We're going to continue our, um, our series in the Gospel of John. I want to encourage you to pull out your Bible, pull out your message notes in your program, and uh, let's dive into it together. I want to remind you of the purpose of John's gospel. It's not in your message notes, but in John 20, 30 and 31, it says, now Jesus did many other signs, the word signs is miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of John's gospel. John calls the signs miracles. He records seven of them in his, in his gospel. And we're going to be looking at one of these miracles today. The miracles point to his deity. It points to the fact that Jesus is indeed God in human flesh, and he's the son of God. Each sign or each miracle illustrates some aspect of his deity. And the purpose of John's gospel, he says, but these are written. And then he gives us the reason. So that, why are these things written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Christos, the anointed one, and the Son of God. So every verse, every chapter, every story, everything that John gives us in his gospel points us to the reality of who Jesus is. This is how we need to see every story through the lens of his purpose. John wants us, as we encounter Jesus and his ministry in his gospel, he wants us to encounter Christ. He wants faith to be awakened within us. John makes this declaration that Jesus is the son of God. But it's not just a declaration. He wants us to do something with it. Christianity is not just head knowledge. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I, gotta, I gotta know this, I gotta know that. And you know what? Here's the deal. Christianity is heart transformation. A lot of people are missing heaven by 12 inches. They have facts about Jesus. They know Bible stories. They, they even believe that there is a God. The demons believe in God and they shudder. The demons will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and with those who reject Christ and the gospel for all eternity. So it's not enough just to intellectually believe that there is a God. You have to allow you have to see the beauty of Christ. Christ is the, the glory of God, the image of God. And when you encounter Christ in the Bible, faith is awakened within you. You encounter him, you see him for who he is, and then his holiness and his greatness puts a spotlight on who you are, that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, and you need his mercy. And so that's the purpose of John's gospel, just kind of I just want to remind us of that as we're walking through the book because it's so helpful to remember, why is John writing this gospel account? Well, to, to show us through the miracles, through Jesus' um, seven I am statements, right? Seven standing for the number for perfection, right? The miracles, his seven I am statements, 
Jesus claiming to be deity. He's claiming, listen, I am the perfect, only one and true eternal God. All right, let's, let's dive into the message. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Here we go. You guys ready? I said, you ready? And I, there was like two people that said, yes. It was, like, it was like a golf clap. All right, here we go. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs, the miracles that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus with drew again to the mountain by himself. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that occurs in all four gospels, which means this miracle is rather important. All four gospel writers highlight this event. If you blend together the stories from all the four gospels, you're gonna see two events that happened before Jesus performed this extraordinary miracle. The first thing that happened was the disciples delivered some devastating news to Jesus that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had just been executed. John the Baptist, this forerunner, this, this messenger, this, this humble man, the greatest prophet to have ever lived, one who boldly pointed people to Jesus, he was now dead. We know the story, he was beheaded, and his bloody skull was placed on a platter by Herod Antipas. So he received the news. Number two, the second thing that took place was Jesus sent the 12 out on a preaching healing tour. He sends out the, the apostles, these disciples, to tell people about the kingdom of God and to heal diseases. And they come back after this preaching healing tour. They come back to Capernaum, which is ministry headquarters. And here's what the gospel writer Mark kind of fills in some details that John doesn't give us. Mark 6, 30 to 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat 
to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Here's principle number one. Turn interruptions into opportunities for ministry. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's emotionally spent. He's grappling with the crushing news that his cousin John the Baptist has just been beheaded. His band of disciples are tired. They've been on this whirlwind tour meeting, meeting so many people's needs. And Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat. Here's what they do. They climb into a boat and they leave Capernaum, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And they cross over to Bethsaida, Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern corner of the lake. Mark tells us that the people saw Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and they ran. And it says that the crowds beat them to Bethsaida. Jesus' retreat with his disciples got interrupted. You know, I chuckled a little bit because I remember being in Israel, exactly where the, the vicinity of where this happened. And it's a, a beautiful grassy hill and it kind of slopes down into this crystal blue sea of Galilee. It's a breathtaking view. And as you're kind of in that area, you're envisioning all of these miracles that took place. And just the thought, I can visualize the people running from one side to the next. Now, a lot of people think, oh, the Sea of Galilee, the width of it has got to be like, you know, like, oh, it's got to be like so large. It's actually not very large. Like, I'm not, I don't have the numbers on me right now, but I think really it's only a few miles in width. It's not very It's not very far. You can see to the opposite side. But Jesus' retreat with his disciples, it gets interrupted. Ken Blanchard says, if it weren't for interruptions, Jesus would not have had a ministry. I think that's kind of a good point, right? His ministry was always being interrupted. Jesus was always being interrupted. Uh, But he turned interruptions into opportunities for ministry. Think of the, the big, ginormous impact that little interruptions had in his ministry. He was invited to a wedding. He was interrupted at a wedding. And what did he do? He turned water into wine. His nap on the fishing boat. Remember, he's taking a nap. And his nap was interrupted by the raging storm. And, and, but soon, it was silenced by the power of his word. His journey to Jerusalem to experience the Passion Week, the the last week of his earthly life and ministry, it was interrupted by a blind man. People were trying to block Bartimaeus from coming to Jesus. He was interrupted by this blind man named Bartimaeus who regained his sight. His teaching to a bunch of religious zealots in this living room got interrupted as friends literally began to kind of rip apart the thatched roof and they began to lower their buddy who was paralyzed down through the roof on a pallet so he could be healed. Do you think about turning interruptions into opportunities for ministry? 
You know, no one likes to be interrupted. Is there anyone that likes to be interrupted? Raise your hand if you just enjoy it, right? No one enjoys it, right? You got a, you got a day planned out, you're interrupted. You tackle a to-do list, you get interrupted, right? Um, you're eating a meal. You ever been just enjoying a really good meal and you get interrupted? Maybe the phone rings or you get like an important text or I don't know, knock on the door. Or, or if, you know, if you're preaching on Sunday morning and you get interrupted. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was, I was going to make a joke, but I decided not to. But I'm going to make the joke now. It's not so much interruptions as people falling asleep on you. Shame on you. I'm trying to preach the eternal word of God, and you're so bored you're sleeping? Shame on you. You should be ashamed if you're falling asleep in church. Go to bed early the night before. Is he really this angry? No, I'm just kidding around. Listen, there's a few of you that you sleep every week, but whatever, it's all good. I still love you. I may not pray for you, but I love you. No, no, here's the deal. We don't like interruptions, right? But there's an upside and there's a downside to everything in life, even with interruptions. When you get interrupted, the downside is your to-do list or the thing that you thought was urgent, you thought was important, you thought was critical to finish, takes a back seat. The upside is God may be giving you an opportunity to meet someone's need. Next time God crashes your schedule, see it as a God thing. See it as a divine appointment, right? See it as, you know what? I don't want to waste this moment. It is so easy. I can tell you, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, right? I get interrupted all the time. And you know what? I've, I've had to learn over the years. You know what? People are my ministry. The, the to-do list, the task, that's not my ministry. People are my ministry. Sometimes I fail out it, right? And I'm impatient and I'm like, ugh, I'm like frustrated. And then other times I'm like, I see victory. I'm like, okay, I tackled that. I was good there, right? I, my day or my week got totally messed up, but I rolled with it, right? We're human. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do career-wise, you know, how big your family is. We are going to face interruptions in life. And we've got to roll with those interruptions. We've got to see God in the, the inner workings of the interruption. When Jesus saw the needy crowds on the shore of his retreat destination, he didn't complain. It's just that he, he felt compassion for them. They were like sheep without a shepherd, without any guidance, without someone providing, without someone protecting them. And, and Jesus is grieving the death of John the Baptist, but he's locked in like a laser beam on the needs of other people. You know, in life, we can, we can battle loneliness and depression and discouragement because life is hard. Life is brutal. Life is harsh. Life is filled with struggles and setbacks and disappointments. And, and sometimes it's consequences of our own sin. But we have to remember, even though life is hard, right? Even though life is hard, we gotta live in the moment. We gotta live in the moment and realize, you know what, God is, God is up to something, right? Um, I tell people when they're really like discouraged, and I tell this to myself, get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on other people. 
If you can shift your mindset, if you can shift your eyes to the needs of people rather than your own needs, guess what? It's a game changer. It's a game changer for you emotionally, for you spiritually, psychologically, because it's not about, it's not about people meeting your needs. It's, about, it's not about you being served. It's not about you being self-centered. It's about how can I bless other people? How can I be a blessing? How can I serve someone this week or this Sunday? It's about getting our eyes on other people. This is what Jesus did. He, he was, this, it was the perfect example. He was always getting his eyes on other people. Jim Elliott once said, wherever you are, be all there. That's good. Wherever you are, be all there. It is so easy to be so consumed with technology and being on our phone and tablets and the laptop and, 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 and chasing the rat race. I mean, American culture is about get more, hoard more, you know, you need more, you know, it's, it, more is not enough, you know? And, and so it's easy to just, it's easy to give into this kind of rat race culture Chasing and chasing and chasing and not really being present in the moment. Jesus was present. He focused on people. He focused on their needs. You know, ever, you ever been tempted to doubt God's goodness? You know, sometimes you just doubt God's compassion towards you. God, you know, if you were good to, towards me, you would do X, Y, and Z. Do you ever wonder, God, do you really care about me? You know, look at this story. Jesus cared about the sea of faces that day. I mean, if he cared about them, then surely he cares about you. You are loved by him. You are created by him. He knows you. Every hair on your head. He knows your life story. He knows every thought you have, every step you take, the motive of your hearts. He knows you because he loves you. He's got an awesome and wonderful plan for your life. You know, the Gospel of John opens up a window for us to see the spiritual condition of the crowds. John 6, verse 2. It says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, you're going to notice, um, most likely next week or the week after, maybe two weeks from now, um, Jesus makes a statement about, I am the bread of life, and he connects some of his statements to this miracle that he performed uh, in, in, in John chapter 6. The crowds, Jesus basically calls out the crowds and says, listen, right, like you, you're following me because you ate your fill. You're following me because of the benefits. You're following me because I performed this miracle. It wasn't because I'm, I'm, this, I'm the Messiah. The crowds believed that Jesus was this miracle worker. But at this moment, a lot of the people in the crowds, they didn't see him as the Messiah. They sought him for all the wrong reasons. They were sign seekers. They were sign seekers. It was about receiving from Jesus rather than giving, rather than worshiping, rather than adoring, rather than declaring who he is. Do you remember the dialogue between Satan and God in the book of Job? It's one of the most powerful stories, I think, in the Bible on suffering. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan responded, does Job fear God for no reason? 
You have put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has. You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. Satan pushed back and he said, Job only serves you because you give him goodies. He receives benefits. Some people serve God only for the goodies. They're they're serving God because they wanna be on the receiving end. They're looking only for the signs. They long to get but not to give. There's nothing new under the sun. The prosperity gospel says God wants you healthy, wealthy, happy. The focus is all about you. You reaping the benefits, being in this relationship with God. God wants you holy more than he wants you happy. Do I believe in John Piper's Christian hedonism theology? 100% that we find our pleasure in God. It's Christian hedonism that we, we find pleasure in God, in knowing God. And God ultimately brings guaranteed satisfaction in our lives. I 100% agree with that. But at the, at the top of the list, God says, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. You know, when people want to get out of a marriage because, you know, lots of reasons. I've fallen out of love. No, you've fallen out of repentance. People want to get out of a marriage because they have fallen out of repentance. They don't want to get right. They don't want to own their mistakes. It's not about falling out of love. Love is a feeling. Love is, love is a choice. Really, love is a choice. You choose to love. When, 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 when you... When you When you say, I do, you are mirroring the gospel. You're displaying in your marriage to your children, to your grandchildren. You're displaying to your oikos. You're displaying to the world the picture of the gospel. God, Christ, sacrificially giving his life for the church. Christ serving the church. Christ is committed to the church. And the Bible says that husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. It's a serving kind of a love. That that love is not, well, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z. No, no, you give love regardless. But then Paul said the mystery of the marriage is that the wife then respects her husband like the church follows the spiritual leadership of Jesus So in your marriage, you don't stay together. You're not staying in love. You don't stay together because, you know, you're in love. No, you stay together, not for companionship, not for the kids. You stay together to model the gospel in your marriage. God, Jesus, never gives up on the church. He never does. Did I just hear something? I did, right? Okay. For a second, I thought, for, for a second, I thought, is someone leaving or is someone coming into the church? Because I might need a bodyguard to get up here and help me here, right? All right. I, I, that's never happened to me before. I, I kind of saw someone over there and I heard someone talking. I thought, what? Is, do we got some crazy person in our church? What's going on here? All right. Anyways, it's all good, right? It's all good. It's all good. Interruptions. Interruptions. 
Oh, God has a sense of humor. All right. So, yes, I just wanted to chase that real quick. All right. John, John chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Let's get back to the story. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Principle number two, problems test our faith. I don't know if you remember the encounter, the encounter between Jesus and Philip, but let me remind you real quick, John chapter one, Jesus goes to Philip, right? There was no preaching, right? There was like no preaching service. There was no friend that went to Philip. There was an encounter between Jesus and Philip. This is how some people come to faith in Christ. It's not through a relationship. It's not through a church service. It's God encounters them and they place faith in Christ. Philip met the Messiah. Philip's life was radically changed. And now Philip's one of the disciples. Why did Jesus ask Philip where they could buy groceries? The the, the passage says that he was testing Philip. Jesus already had a plan because he's God, right? He's all-knowing. Now, Philip is from Bethsaida. So it's actually, based on John chapter 1, it's the stomping grounds of Andrew, his brother Peter, and Philip. So maybe those three, they most likely grew up together, right? It was, Bethsaida was hometown, stomping grounds. It's where they grew up. Now, If anyone knew where to get fast food for 5,000 people, right? Maybe it was Philip or Andrew or Peter. Well, Jesus calls Philip out, right? And Philip's like, hey, Jesus, even if we had 200 denarii, that still wouldn't be enough. 200 denarii, we know that one denarius is one day's wage for a common laborer. So we're talking like, eight months worth of income. Jesus said this to test him. He said this to test Philip. Sometimes problems are are meant to test us. Really, that's what they are. They're, They're there to test us. Trials and problems have a purpose that are designed by God. Temptations, right, can can crush us, draw us away from God. But trials are meant to draw us to God. God has a bigger perspective than we do on our problems. Problems test our faith. James, the little brother of Jesus said, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He uses the word testing as in testing gold and silver. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. Notice what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Has anyone ever been surprised by a trial? Isn't that ironic? We're, we are continually surprised that trials cascade into our lives. Here's the deal. You're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. You know, God uses the furnace of trials to burn off impurities and to make us more like Jesus. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, life-giving faith grows beautiful and pure 
in the same place that gold grows beautiful and pure in the furnace. God uses the furnace, fiery trials, to transform us into the image of Christ, to purify us, to make us more like Jesus. Let me give you another analogy, the sculptor. You know, nothing worthwhile ever happens without endurance and and energy. When a stone sculpture is trying to sculpt a masterpiece, do you think the first time he hits the chisel with the hammer, everything's gonna just fall off and it's gonna be this beautiful sculpture? No, he has to keep hitting it and hitting it and chipping away. And that's the way life is. Nothing really worthwhile ever comes easy in life. You have to keep hitting it and and going after it. And little by little, your life becomes a masterpiece. God uses problems that are purposeful to, and and he uses these problems to chip away at us, to refine our character, to make us into this beautiful masterpiece. Notice what John says. In John 6, 8 and 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, if you know anything about Andrew, we talked a little bit about Andrew when we first encountered him in John chapter 1. Andrew always plays second fiddle. He's never center stage. He's always in the background. He's in the background, but God is using him in amazing ways. Did you notice it says one of his disciples, Andrew, say it with me, Simon Peter's brother. His identity is always connected to his brother. Isn't that interesting? Like Andrew, yeah, you know Andrew, yeah. You know, he's Peter's brother, you know. Well, even though he plays secondary role, And even though Peter is known, right? I mean, he's well known. Peter gets the limelight. He's center stage. Andrew, he's in the shadows. Peter's well known. He's the one, he walks on water. He's the first one to recognize Jesus as the son of God. He runs to the empty tomb. He preaches on the day of Pentecost when the early church was born and 3,000 people got saved and they were baptized. I mean, it was Peter who wrote two books in the New Testament. Andrew, he doesn't get much press. But you know what the amazing thing is about Andrew? Three times in the Bible, he's always bringing people to Jesus. He brings his brother to Jesus. Literally, in John, in John chapter one, it says, he first found his brother. When you encounter Christ, when Jesus transforms your life, you're gonna wanna go find someone. You're gonna wanna go tell someone about Jesus. And if that fire has been just snuffed out, ask God to give you that fire and that passion again to share the glorious news of the gospel that someone who is dead can be alive in Christ. God can give you that fire in your bones, that passion in your heart to share the gospel again. Andrew, what does he do? He goes and he finds his brother. He goes to his oikos. He goes to his his brother, his family, and he says, listen, I have found the Messiah. You see the intentionality of, of Jesus We've, I found the anointed one. And then the second occurrence, he's bringing Greeks to Jesus. He's basically saying, listen, the gospel is for everyone. And then here in John 6, he finds a little boy with a sack lunch. 
a few pieces of bread and, and a few tiny fish. And he gives this little sack lunch to Jesus. Here's the encouragement to us today. The story, the, the, the life of Andrew dispels the myth that you have to be gifted or well-known to be used by God. No, you just gotta be available. You just gotta have some faith. You just gotta have, have some passion in your heart to be bold about the gospel and, and to go to your loved ones. You remember what Jesus said to Philip? Or remember what Jesus said in the passage, it says that, that Jesus, he said these things to test him, but he already had a plan. Here's the next principle. Jesus is aware of our needs and always has a plan to meet them. He's aware of our needs and he has a plan. You know, we label this story the feeding of the 5,000, but really the crowd that day was so much bigger than that. Matthew 14, 21 says, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, 5,000 men, not counting women, wives, children. I mean, we're talking like maybe like 15, 20,000 people in attendance. I mean, hands down, this is one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever performed. He was aware of their needs and he had a plan to meet them. Jesus is committed to meeting your needs. And I think this is a good principle we can draw. The miracle puts a spotlight on its deity, but the miracle also tells us something very tender, very, very just something really awesome about Jesus. He is committed to meeting your needs, big and small. If you think about it, nothing is, is too big for God. The Bible tells us that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. I mean, he created everything out of nothing. All of our needs are puny in his sight. When God is big, our problems are small. If you have a high view of God, you're gonna have a low view of your current situation because God is bigger than your small problems. But listen, the reversal can take place. If God is small, if you see God as small, tiny, insignificant, weak, puny, you know, he can't do much, then your problems are gonna be massive. Jesus is at work. Jesus is getting ready to feed 15, 20,000 people. Jesus is big, glorious. And the people that are hungry, small problem. How do you see your problems? It is so easy to see our problems as, as big. It's so easy to just to lose sight of how great God is. It's so easy to just flounder. It's easy not to tap into faith and believe that, that God is on the throne, that God is sovereign, God is in control. Nothing will happen to us unless God allows it. But how do we see our problems? How do we see our setbacks? Let me give you a better question. Not so much how do we see our problems, how do you see God? Is he big or is he small? Which one is it for you? Jesus is committed to meeting our needs. When a problem arises, what should be our first reaction? We look to him. We fix our eyes on him. And our thinking must be vertical, not horizontal. Philip's problem, his thinking was horizontal. He was like, man, you know, there's not like a local fast food joint that I could feed all these people with, right? It's just impossible. He, he didn't have... His thinking wasn't faith-filled. It was, it was tiny, it wasn't big. 
Look at verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and we had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Here's principle number four. And I should get an amen on this. Jesus is more than enough. Amen? Jesus is more than enough. Are there any organizers here this morning, right? Anyone that's willing to be like, you know, I'm not ashamed, right? You, you love to plan ahead. You love to-do lists, right? Anyone, right? You're like a nerd. You're just, you're into the details, man. Give me the spreadsheets, the checklist, the to-do list, man. I'm gonna bust it out, right? Um, we got people like that, the detailed-oriented people, right? I mean, they can line everything up for a flawless execution. I love those people. <laughs> I love those people. People that can, can get it done, right? Nerds, you're, you're seen as kind of a nerd by a lot of people. Do we have anyone here that maybe you're like the total opposite? Your claim to fame is an organization. Yeah, but you're just there for the party. Let's just have fun. Let, you know what? It'll take care of itself. Yeah, throw in a little work. But you know what? Life is about enjoying, right? Anyone? Like, hey, man, come on, come on, be honest. Okay, that's good. I like that. So instead of maybe having like a solid plan, like you, you know, you work best under pressure. Procrastination is your friend, right? You're seen as the free spirit. The nerds are going to love what I'm about to say. There is organization in the miracle. Amen? There's organization in the miracle. One gospel writer tells us that the disciples had the people sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Jesus takes a little boy's sack lunch, five barley loaves, two fish, actually food for poor peasants, and he blessed it. He blessed the food. It's like he's recognizing God, the Father, in the miracle. He was sent by God the Father to perform these miracles, these signs, and he's bringing this to God his Father, and he blesses this, and, and, and he's able to feed thousands of people that day. I can guarantee you that there was one in the audience who was shocked to the core, and it was probably the little boy with the sack lunch. <laughs> he probably picked up his little brown bag and looked inside and then saw 15, 20,000 people eating bread and fish and was just amazed. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? You know what you have. You got five barley loaves. You got two fish. That's all you got. But there's 15, 20,000 people that are hungry. I can guarantee you some of the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, we've seen you do some miracles, man. We, but, hmm, wow, this, this, this is a big one. This is a big one. And you know what? Jesus showed them who he was. There are there are, there are no problems in your life that are bigger than God's power. God can work miracles in your life. 
I think sometimes we just, we, we lack faith. We, we just don't believe that God can do certain things. I like what Luke tells us in Luke 9, verse 17. He gives a word that John doesn't give us. And they all ate and were satisfied. Circle the word satisfied or put a asterisk next to it. Tell your neighbor, circle, underline it, right? Circle that. And, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. There's a line, there's that word, satisfied. You know, Jesus is more than enough. With, with Jesus... Our life is satisfied. But there's a real battle that rages within all of our souls. Is Jesus truly enough? Is he really enough or do I need to look elsewhere? People try to find their identity and their significance in either someone or something. And sometimes we search for it in in what we have and what we want someday, even in what we've lost. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? To show us who he was, that he's the Bread of life come down from heaven. We're gonna, we're gonna look at you know, the dialogue between Jesus and the people. He's the bread of heaven come down from heaven. He's the all-satisfying, all-sustaining one. He's good, he's delicious, he's, he's hearty grain-filled bread that satisfies deep hunger pains. Jesus, he's not white bread. He's grain-filled bread. Satisfies you, right? Gives you like good fiber, fills you up, right? Jesus is like bread. Bread, when you eat bread, there's something about bread and butter. (laughs) Don't leave the butter out. I mean, come on now. We were just eating some bruschetta, some bread and butter on the side. Oh, I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. Bread, there's something about bread that's filling, it's satisfying. Jesus is our soul's bread, he satisfies. He's good to us. Jesus has come into the world not to, not to give you bread, but to be your bread. He came to be your bread. How can Jesus be our bread? Let me land the plane. Here we go. John 6, verse 51. He said, later in the chapter, he says, I am the bread, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, he became bread. All nourishing, all satisfying bread for sinners who believe. Now, we're going to look at the story in a few weeks. Man, there were some people that got really twisted, man. They, they, they got twisted. They thought he was talking about cannibalism. You got to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. They totally got it, totally confused. And Jesus said, no, it's about belief in me. When Jesus broke the bread to over 15,000, 20,000 people that day, it was a symbolic act that someday his body would be broken for us. And satisfaction would be found in him. He was pointing to the day when his body would be broken and we would be satisfied in him and in him alone. The end of the story, look at verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Referencing, I believe, Deuteronomy 18, Moses talked about a prophet that would come someday for the people. I think this is what they're talking about. And then notice what it says. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why did Jesus leave the crowds? The people held him as the prophet. 
which is true based on Deuteronomy 18, but they also tried to force something that was premature. They tried to force him to be king in the moment. They wanted, now I want you to hear me on this, they wanted to create their own version of Jesus and who he ought to be. King of the Jews, wielding a sword and scepter, a powerful military and political ruler who would crush the Roman Empire. We know that Jesus came to set up a kingdom within the hearts of his followers. Someday he's gonna come back to set up his kingdom here on earth. The question that I'm gonna leave you with this morning is, it's just like the people during this day. They're forcing something that's premature. They're forcing him to be this military giant, this political king, this ruler who would rescue them from the oppression and tyranny of Rome. Are you creating your own version of Jesus? Are you allowing the Bible to give you its version of Jesus? Or are you creating your own version in your mind? Or are you allowing the culture to dictate who Jesus is? Like, he's a morally um, exemplary figure. Socialist Jesus. Revolutionary liberationist. Or a countercultural cool Jesus. You know, Jesus is my buddy. He's my homeboy. You ever seen those shirts? Jesus is my homeboy. He's more than your homeboy. He's, he's your king. He's your Lord. He's your savior. He's your master. Jesus being your homeboy ain't gonna get you into heaven. Unless the, this homeboy terminology is like your faith in Christ, you're tight with him. Okay, okay, then, all right, then you're good, right? But it's just like this cool Jesus. People, everyone wants this cool version of Jesus. Jesus just loves everybody. You know, we're not sinners. We're not broken. We don't need mercy and grace and forgiveness and redemption. No, we do. We need to be redeemed. We need a second chance. We need a savior. We can't create our own version of Jesus. We have to allow the word of God to shape and, and, to, and to dictate and to tell us who Jesus is. Make sure that you encounter the Jesus of the Bible, that you land on the real biblical Jesus, that he is the savior of the world. He's our great God and king. He's our all-satisfying bread from heaven who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray.